Hello and welcome to Policy 360 Unplugged. Today's podcast is with Barry Andrews, an Irish MEP. We chat about Brexit and how charities can influence Europe. Enjoy. Barry, thank you so much for agreeing to take part in my podcast. I really appreciate it. I was wondering, could we start with telling my listeners a little bit about yourself and how you became involved in politics, especially at an EU level? Sure. Well, first of all, congratulations on your podcast, Ellen. Um, and it's a real honour to, to join you today. Um, yeah, I mean, Europe for me, uh, for a lot of the, you know national politicians, I was in the Dáil for 10 years it is a bit remote and you don't really, uh, it's very hard to understand the mechanisms, frankly, even though I had done an EU law degree, you know, part of my law degree. Um, and even though I was a member of the European Affairs Committee in Leicester House. So, uh, in fact, I lost my seat in 2011. I went off doing other things. And really one of the catalysts for bringing me back into politics was actually Brexit. And the sense that with the UK out of the European Union, Ireland would need to look more carefully at its relationship with Brussels. And I felt the centre of gravity was shifting a little bit towards Brussels. We, you know, we were very closely aligned with the UK uh, during our, our common membership since 1973 and relied on the UK to a huge extent for interpretation of proposed amendments, of proposed regulations, directives. And the overall Whitehall machine, uh, you know, we were closely aligned on these issues. So um, the absence of the UK meant, in my opinion, that we needed to do more to understand Brussels, to influence it at all of the institutional levels and at the parliament. So that's the main reason why uh, I decided to, uh, to commit to the election in 2019. That actually brings me on very nicely to another question. And in your view, what do you foresee as the ramifications of Brexit for Northern Ireland in particular? But also I'm thinking about the social issues that charities deal with on a day-to-day basis. And especially when you think of the peace dividend that Northern Ireland has had over the years through EU funding, and then recently, the levelling up funds that has come from the UK government hasn't quite matched um, pound for pound, as it were. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, there's obviously the negative aspects of, of, of Brexit are very obvious to most people. And, and Nor- Northern Irish people in their wisdom voted against Brexit. Um, uh, so, so it's created an awful lot of difficulties but the European Union member states stood uh, with Ireland writ large and were anxious to protect all of the uh, progress that had been made. So we, we are now at a point where, you know, we're not going back. Uh, we're going to have to really think about the opportunities. And many in the DUP get irritated when you talk about the, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that we have the, the opportunity to be both in the single market in the UK, but also in the European single market. But it does present opportunities. I was in, the, in Belfast um, just two months ago, spoke with many representatives of the business community, most of whom are just getting on with it. And this is after the red lane, green lane uh, provisions were brought in in early October um, on the social sector. Uh, there's no question but that charities are really seeing unbelievably difficult circumstances in Northern Ireland. We've met with civil society representatives 
as well as the business community. And they are reporting levels of deprivation that they haven't seen for many, many years. Um, and this is going to cause generational damage, particularly to families, to young children uh, that are being denied the kind of services. But that's not uh, a really an issue around Brexit. This is the fact that you've no executive in place. And so there's no political leadership and therefore there's no direction. And you just have this managerial bureaucracy in place and it's coming at a great cost. And the European Union can do something to try to help, uh, to try to provide the flexibilities to allow the DUP to come back into government, but not a whole lot else. So, you know, I, I was actually really disturbed by what I heard from uh, civil society actors in, in Northern Ireland when I was there in Belfast. It was quite astonishing to hear. And it wasn't anybody, it was nobody, was, you know, um, you know, posturing. Nobody was playing politics. The The meeting was in private, um, uh, but it, it was just extraordinary to see how far backwards Northern Ireland has gone. So uh, the real, the only real solution there is return of the executive and some kind of stable government for the future. And in terms of influencing uh, policy at an EU level, because we don't have any MEPs here, if charities did want to influence policy, how would they go about that and what mechanisms are in place to allow them to do that? Well, well it's interesting that, you know, I did get elected in 2019, um, but in another sense, I didn't get elected because we, there were extra seats and they were only distributed after the UK left in February 2020. So eight months later, I came in. So I, I, I joke that I'm the one of the few beneficiaries of Brexit in the Republic. Um, so when the UK left, I came in. So I, I did, I knew that Naomi Long had left my group, the Renew Europe group, uh, and I came in. <clears throat> and also Diane Dodds left and Martina Anderson. So, they, you know, people forget as well how progressive Northern Ireland was to elect three women, um, but all, all left the European Union and the European Parliament at that time. So I immediately took it upon myself uh, to take seriously my role, not just as a representative for Dublin and Ireland, but the island of Ireland. So I've been involved in all of the Brexit committees and all of the uh, discussions uh, around the development of the trade and cooperation agreement. So whenever there is a, re a delegation from Belfast or anywhere in Northern Ireland that comes to Brussels, I will meet them 100%. And in fact, I would say that's true of all of the 13 Irish MEPs. There's always a sense that we have a wider obligation. It's nothing about sovereignty. It's not only about overreach. It's not political. It's just that kind of network that, you know, you have to make yourself available uh, to representatives from Northern Ireland. And that's across the community. And I think any civil society group that has come from Northern Ireland to Brussels has been given, an, you know, really good. Um, uh, they've really shown everything that can be done. I've met groups from, you know, Westminster, I've met groups from civil society, the Northern Ireland office uh, will always contact me when they have a group coming into Brussels. So the first thing I will say is that it's essential for civil society groups to really be present in Brussels, to, 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 uh, to make the effort to travel over to Brussels and to, to not only to develop the connections and the, the linkages with individuals and institutions, but also just to simply understand how it all works and how Northern Ireland now sits within the overall sets of relationships between Brussels, London, Dublin, and Belfast. And that is a really critical thing. Any, any corporate knowledge, 
uh, any civil society has to have that, uh, that 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 understanding. So I would really recommend that. The other thing is, I mean, you know, making direct contacts with MEPs uh, through email, etc. I think you will find the Irish MEPs very responsive to that. I set up this uh, in, uh, Brexit, uh, what is, what's called a Belfast Brussels Roundtable. MEPs and MLAs, we've got together on three occasions in Brussels, um, and we've had great discussions. And my view is, you know, the more immersion I can give to MLAs as to, you know, what's available to them in Brussels, the better they'll, they will uh, be able to represent their constituents. So th- there are various levers out there, uh, but I think the main thing is, you know, get on a plane. It's it's a really important uh, part of the future of Northern Ireland. Whatever your views about the protocol, the Windsor framework, you you know, Northern Ireland is going to be in the single market for goods in the future. So uh, civil society has to understand what the consequences of that are. Can I ask you then in terms of you were sent for charities to get on a plane, come over and meet MEPs and understand the process. Are there funds available for charities or groups in Northern Ireland if they want to do that? Well, absolutely. Um, there, there, there are. And the, these have been agreed uh, post-Brexit and post the uh, UK withdrawal. So there are there is peace funding there, which is available. Um, and, and there are various very clear structures available for uh, applications to be made by civil society. And they've been extremely successful. And uh, there's also the possibility for uh, cooperation in in other areas uh, such as um, uh, horizon funding, which can be uh, you know where where universities would apply for, which would be a little bit different to to charities getting involved. But you now there there is a, you know once there's a cross border element to it and a peace building element to it, uh, there is a, a huge amount of goodwill towards Northern Ireland. I think that was demonstrated throughout the peace with throughout the Brexit uh, process and the ongoing Brexit process. So. There are funds there, and uh, that's why it's uh, certainly worthwhile. I want to touch now on relationships in terms of what do you perceive the future relationship and how it evolves between Northern Ireland, the EU, and also Ireland as well, because what we're seeing is that the Irish government is making a huge commitment um, investment in Northern Ireland. So it would be good for you to give your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I mean, my party's position is, you know, we have a shared island unit and we're more interested in uniting people than territory. We are also interested, obviously, in United Ireland. But in the meantime, uh, well, that, you know, according to polling, this, the, the conditions aren't right for a referendum on that. Um, we want to do all, all we can to really get the benefit of the shared island unit through investments in uh, infrastructure, sh- such as the narrow water bridge, um, w- which I visited as well with the with a European delegation uh, a couple of months ago. So, you know, that that's that's the central part of it. But I think that there, there's been a massive change over 2023 last year which was that Rishi Sunak became the prime minister and brought to an end a period of complete breakdown in trust between the UK and the European Union. Uh, The the sense in Brussels was that every time you negotiated with the UK, with London, they would essentially trouser any um, uh, concessions that were made to them and come back looking for more. Uh, Whereas Rishi Sunak presents more as a grown-up, somebody you can trust, somebody that you can negotiate with and know that he isn't going to 
showboat and take advantage of any uh, concessions that are made. So that's really helped. Um, but, but I, I think you know the overall situation on the on the island of Ireland. We really need to see the executive up and running. That's the crucial part of it because that means we can have all of the other um, strands of the Good Friday Agreement in in place, which is the north south and uh, and the east west. All of that can come back into play, and that plays such a crucial role because you know I, I mean I talk a little bit about connective tissue, and all of that was severed around Brexit, all of the ways in which, for example, Irish MEPs would have mixed with the Northern Irish MEPs, Irish MEPs would have mixed with the British MEPs, uh, you know, the, from, from, from Great Britain. And all of that is gone. All of the commission officials meeting with each other from both sides, all of that is gone. And there's been really nothing to fill back in. You can't completely replace that, but you can mitigate the damage that's been done by it. So that's why I set up the Belfast Brussels Roundtable. You know, that's all I can do at an MEP level. That's there. And it's, you know, I've developed great relationships with Doug Beattie, with Jeffrey Donaldson, with Gordon Lyons, with uh, Robbie Butler on the unionist side, and Matthew O'Toole and uh, Claire Hanna. And in the Sinn Féin group, Declan Carney has been very, very supportive of the initiative. So we, we it, it, you know, that's the kind of connective tissue that has to be developed and people have to make that effort. But without an executive, it's very hard. All you're doing is improvising all the time. So the, the damage is not just to the Northern Ireland economy, Northern Ireland society. The damage is to the overall sets of relationships Northern Ireland should be cultivating right now, not just on the island of Ireland, not just with Brussels, but in the wider world. Northern Ireland is a great story to tell, whether it's about its sport, its culture, its uh, you know, there, there's so many great things to talk, to talk about, but without political direction, uh, without the passion and vision that you get from leading politicians, uh, you really are just left with a managerial bureaucracy, which is not the same thing. And that's the reason we have politics. It's why we have governance. Um, we, we have to have people in those places that can articulate the future for young people to show you know, why they love the place that they come from and at the moment. It's a tragedy, frankly, that's really not present and it's damaging um, the potential for so many people in Northern Ireland. And I really think it, uh, it's, it's the key that will unlock everything. It sounds as if relationships are very important. And would you say that charities have a role in that as well? Yeah, I think I think Northern Ireland is kind of a special case to a certain extent in that uh, the charity sector is quite large. Certainly the voluntary sector is quite large in Northern Ireland. And I've found that uh, charity needs to really stand up for itself because there's a big focus at government level on the private sector and on you know public service workers. And the third sector tends to fall between the cracks. And if problems occur in the third sector well it's every man for himself you know it's tough luck um then you have this thing that there's all this well, there's all this duplication in the third sector but this duplication in the private sector you know this is so these are social enterprises and yes they do compete with each other but competition breeds uh you know healthy efficiency and uh and, and a bit more a robust way of presenting your arguments so i don't i don't I, you know I'm a great defender of the third sector because I used to be the chief executive of Goal, a big Irish charity based in Dublin, um, where we were overseas aid. And we had problems there in Goal. I, I, you know, your listeners might be familiar with, with that. There was a major fraud in Turkey uh, 
on the Turkey-Syria border within our organization. And we were frankly left high and dry uh, by the government. And it, it was a valuable lesson for me that, you know, the, the government doesn't really understand uh, the economic value of what has been done in the third sector because it's not a typical balance sheet that we're all familiar with uh, in the private sector. And, uh, and I think that's very short-sighted. So uh, I, I think that, the, the, that uh, the, the civil society has an outsized role to play, not only in trying to influence their politicians to come back to the table and to make sure that they put in place the provisions to allow the Good Friday Agreement to be in place, to allow all those networking to take place, to allow Northern Ireland to have its voice in the world. Um, you know, that kind of pressure is crucial because, you know, as I said, when I went to, in October, I just couldn't believe how, uh, damaged society has been from the the consequences of the breakdown in the executive. Can you share a little bit about the the key issues that charities were bringing and representing in terms of what was happening in Northern Ireland? Well, it was funding, to be frank and honest, and a lack of direction. So uh, there's been significant cuts in funding for most charities from what we could see. The knock-on effect on uh, families that were availing of the services of these civil society groups um, was very apparent. And most of the representatives that were there uh, were telling us things that, you know, they hadn't seen it in their lifetime, how bad it had become. And as I said, I wasn't concerned that they were, uh, you know, overplaying or over-egging the situation because we didn't have funds to help them. You know, we were just there to hear what their impression was of the, the overall political situation. So, uh, you know, and, and I've been in the charity sector for long enough to know that, you know, these were concerns that were sincerely uh, expressed, but it's in the disability sector, uh, particularly um, uh, people that avail of services around disability, such as language, uh, developments, speech therapy, the availability of uh, development supports for young children uh, it was at a chronic stage, really, really terrible. Um, there were no assessments being carried out. There was delays in the provision of treatment. Um, and, and look, we have problems like that in the Republic of Ireland, don't get me wrong. But we'd like to think we're getting a little bit better from, you know, incrementally, it should be much more, more quickly. But if you think of the sense in Northern Ireland, things are going backwards. And, um, and that's not, a, that's not any, something anybody wants uh, to hear. So it was, it was a quite, uh, you, you know, and I was there, I was the only Irish MEP on the delegation. There were um, a German guy, a, a Swedish guy, and they were, uh, they were uh, surprised by what they were hearing, you know, because they, they, they expected more. You know, Northern Ireland gets more transfers from the UK exchequer than any other region in the UK, but it's still... Um, you know, what, what, there's such a lack of productivity in the private sector that, um, you know, the, 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 it's really, it all comes back to, you need a minister of the economy who's going to drive uh, an agenda. You've got in place now in Invest Northern Ireland, a very good new chief executive who I think will be a very good, he, he used to work with the IDA in the Republic. Um, and I think if you get the executive in place, you'll be able to uh, take advantage of the opportunities. Um, yes, I, I have heard the stories in terms of what's happening in the community and voluntary sector, and it, it is stark. It really is. Um, finally, I'd like to ask you, have you any 
other advice for charities that want to influence policy at an EU level? Yeah, I think that, um, I, I, you know, if you get sort of, a, 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 there are various ways in which lobbying occurs by, by charities. <clears throat> the best thing to do, you know, well, the worst thing to do is to send out an email that is sent to everybody and it's very blunt and can be ignored. Um, the best way to do is face-to-face -face networking with politicians, uh, but also to understand the permanent civil service and to know who the people are who are, uh, who are connected to things and not to be overly formal with politicians. You know, you don't have to meet in a, uh, you don't have to meet in, in, a, in a meeting room and, you know, you can have a coffee with somebody and just get to know, look, I'm not here for an agenda. I just want you to know this is our organization, nothing more, and just chat. You'll find, because uh, we're all living in Ireland, uh, we probably know somebody who knows somebody. And, you know, th so that networking element is absolutely critical. Um, and then when you need something from the politician, if you need a door opened, if you need to understand some new pro proposal, well, you have a connection. So rather than going cold to that, um, you know, when I used to do fundraising for a charity, you know, for the same charity when I was chief executive. So fundraising was a crucial part of our job. And they always said, before you asked for money, you needed to meet the person three or four times and have, you know, and, and some of the best fundraisers have matrices that they have on their wall and they, all right, I've met them four times. Now I go in for the kill. <laughs> so it's a little bit like that around, um, around lobbying you know and there's there's a few guys that i, I see in brussels and you know they, they're just around the place and uh, they make sure that they're you know who they are so that when they need something you never hesitate uh to to respond to it you know you know that that's that's old-fashioned networking so yeah I, I would avoid all the you know the blizzard of emails from you know interested parties uh, you, you'll just get a stock response back a holding email back and um, I think the personal contact is crucial. That's that's why the loss of direct contact with Brussels needs to be, uh, you know, backfilled in some way through, through other methods to be mitigated. As I said, you can't replace what was there, but you can mitigate it to some extent. I think that relationship building is so important and a few other people have certainly highlighted that. Barry, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. I really appreciate it. My great pleasure, Ellen. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Policy 360 Unplugged. I hope this episode provided you with valuable insights and a deeper understanding of how you can influence policy. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast. Your support is much appreciated. Until next time.